0: Good morning. Hope you're doing well. If you are a guest, we are especially delighted that you're here with us uh, this morning. Uh, I want to say a very, very spe- special welcome to you. I also want to say, go Jackets. So just go ahead and get that out there. Uh, just to kind of lay that out there. Uh, not as excited as I would have been had we not kicked our best player off the team. But um, I'm going to be down there. It'll be a fun time either way. Uh, But we got something way more important today, and that is Luke chapter 20. We'll be in verses 9 through 18, and probably in your life, whether it's a questionnaire or a survey or something, or just a a child who's just super inquisitive and just keeps asking you questions, you've probably been asked at some point, you know, what is your favorite kind of music? What is your favorite kind, or what is your favorite genre of music? And I have a hard time answering that question because I pretty much like all kinds, from classical to hip-hop to classic rock, to alternative, to pop, to jazz, uh, to country, except for bro country. I hate that. Um, But pretty much all kinds of music, all genres I I like. And there are genres in all kinds of different cultural markers. You've got, obviously, in music, but also in art. There's different genres of art. There's different uh, genres of literature. And the Bible is literature, right? Right. And so, written over thousands of years by dozens of different authors on a variety of different continents and different languages. And so it comes in a variety of genres. So you've got poetry, you've got prose, you've got prophecy, you've got allegory, you've got typology, you've got all of these different historical narratives, all of these different genres of literature in the Bible. And it's extremely important when you're interpreting Scripture that you understand what genre You are reading or you'll get yourself into a world of trouble because if you are reading poetry or prophecy and you're reading it as if it is prose, you're going to get yourself in all kinds of trouble. And so when we come to the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, they're primarily historical accounts. John is a little bit different because it's more of a theology of Christ rather than a chronology of his life. But when we come to these, they're primarily historical accounts, just prose, and the parables that Jesus tells are primarily just kind of hypothetical metaphors. And he's teaching to drive home one central point in the parables. And so we have to be careful not to overinterpret that, every little spiritual detail, and come out with something that Jesus never intended. It wasn't the point of what he was teaching, okay? But when we come to Luke chapter 20, verse 9, this is a place where every little spiritual detail has a meaning because this parable, unlike all of his other parables, is just a straight up allegory. Okay? None of the other parables, maybe one is, but none of the other parables are allegory. This one is. Somebody says, what's an allegory? An allegory is where you take, it's where you tell a story with different characters to relay, to relay the story so that you can't define a word with a word, but I just did. So let me try to give you some examples. If you've ever read the book uh, Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan. okay, this is a allegory of the spiritual life. So you've got this pilgrim and that's you as the reader and he's going through different places, different cities, and they all have different spiritual names. And it's just a process, it's just a story of the life of a Christian making his way through life and growing as a Christian. Or if you've ever read or even seen The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, that is an allegory of the Gospel. You've got Edmund, who's a son of Adam, and he's a sinner. And you've got Aslan the king, the lion, and he dies in the place of the son of Adam for his sin rises again, right, and comes and defeats the witch. That's Satan. Sets the captives free. All this, that's an allegory. And that's what we've got going on in Genesis, or Genesis, good grief, Luke chapter 20, verse 9 through 18. We have this allegory. It's the kind of story that Jesus is going to tell here. And so what I I want to do this morning is I want to make our way through this allegorical parable. And I want to show you the characters of the story And then I want to focus in on the core of this story. All right. So we'll talk about the characters. then we'll talk about what it's really all about, why Jesus told this thing in the first place. And so, again, we're going to be picking it up in verse nine. Context wise, Jesus is in Jerusalem now. So this long journey that began in chapter nine, he set his face towards Jerusalem. He's there. Triumphal entry. John preached on that last week or covered that last week as part of his sermon. So he's entered in. Hosanna in the highest was sung. They were quoting Psalm 118 that John read from a little while ago. They're quoting all of that. And so he's come into the city and we're mere days before he dies for the sins of the world. And you have all these religious leaders questioning his authority. Why do you have the authority to say what you're saying? Why do you have the authority to do what you claim to be doing? So Jesus tells them this story. As an answer to that. And so let's pick it up. Verse 9. Look at verse 9 with me. And he began to tell this parable. A man planted a vineyard. And let it out to tenants. And went into another country. For a long while. And so talking about the characters of the allegory. The man who planted the vineyard is God. And so character number one is God. He is the owner of the vineyard. And in one sense, the vineyard is all of creation because God created it all. He owns it all. He created everyone and everything. So it's all his. Right. So we talk about this a lot in here. That means, practically speaking, your house is not yours. It's God's. Your car is not yours. It's God's. Your money is not yours. It's God's. Your family is not yours. It's God's. And he has given these things to you because he's a good God. But he's given them to you to steward for His glory, but also your good, but ultimately His glory. And so in one sense, the vineyard is everything, all of creation. But in particular, in this parable, it's narrowed down specifically to refer to the nation of Israel. and To that people. And so the vineyard then is Israel. And so this is a national symbol. This vineyard goes back 700 years to the prophet Isaiah. It's even carved on the temple there. This, you know, vineyard. And so there's nobody missing this symbol when he talks about vineyard. Everybody knows, oh, he's he's talking about us now. It'd be like if we saw a bald eagle, we'd be like, oh, he's talking about us. If you're Canadian, you saw a maple leaf, you'd be like, hey, he's talking about us. <laughs> Love you guys. I thought about you this week as I was like, hope they take this well. But that's, nobody's missing this. Everybody knows what he's talking about. There's no doubt here on, on what Jesus is talking about. And so God's the owner, all right? The vineyard uh, is Israel. And like any vineyard, God wants to see it grow and be, you know, produce good fruit and flourish and ultimately be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. That's what Israel was supposed to do. And so verse 9 again, looking at it, and he began to tell this parable, a man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country. And so this is pretty common during that time in Palestine to have absentee landlords. And so that's what you've got here. And the tenants then, the tenants are the spiritual leaders of Israel. And they are to see that the vineyard grows and flourishes and produces a profit. And so this is not that different really from the farm that I grew up on. My granddaddy was a, was a cotton farmer, and he had other crops, but that was his main thing. My dad, who's actually here today, grew up, at least part of the time, uh, picking cotton, driving it to the, to the gin, on and on and on and on. Now, by the time I came along, my grandfather, he died before I was born, and my grandmother leased it out to people in the community, the Bagwell family, who still have that lease today, members of the same church, and they began running cows on it. And so they run cows, they raise hay, whatever they do. When I was a kid, there were soybeans as well. And they, um, they would pay Mama Ruth, and now pay my dad and my aunt, um, money for being able to use the land. And, and so the problem with the tenants here, I mean, that's how it worked, and that's kind of how it works here. But the problem with these tenants, the spiritual leaders of Israel, is that they're not paying They're not doing what they're supposed to be doing. They're not seeking to produce a fruitful, godly vineyard for God, the owner, but use it as a means of material gain and power for themselves. That's what they're doing. And so the owner has to do something about this. And so verse 10, God, the owner, has to do something about this. And so verse 10, when the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shame, him shamefully and sent him away empty handed. And he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. And so the servants here are the prophets. OK, and I mean, this is just Jeremiah 725 lays it out. Very plainly, God says, I have persistently sent all my, and listen to this, servants, the prophets, to them day after day, yet they did not listen to me. This is just the narrative of the Old Testament on repeat. This happened over and over and over and over again. God sends prophets. He calls people to faithfulness. He calls people to repentance. He calls them to bear good fruit. And he warns them that if they don't, they will perish But all these men get in return is persecution, abuse, rejection from the tenants of God's vineyard. I mean, just track through some of this with me. Elijah was hated by the queen and had to run for his life. Jeremiah was ridiculed and rejected before being thrown into a pit and left for dead. Zechariah was murdered in the precincts of the temple. John the Baptist was beheaded And then shortly before his own martyrdom, the deacon Stephen, so we're in the New Testament now, Acts chapter 7, summarized all of this by saying to the religious leaders, the tenants of the vineyard, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did not your fathers persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of... Of the righteous one. But notice the patience of God here. He just keeps sending more prophets. He had every right to be severe. And be angry. And come in judgment immediately. But he's patient. And that's one of the points Jesus trying to drive home about God through this parable. Is his immense patience. This is a God who loves beyond measure. He has every right to take strong action, but He's compassionate when He has every right to be severe. The reformer Martin Luther said, if I was God, talking about this section of Scripture, if I was God and the world had treated me as it treated Him, I would have kicked the wretched thing to pieces. But instead of turning His back on the world, God continued sending servant after servant after servant. I mean, this is just a giant allegory of what has gone on historically, right? of the Old Testament. And thus far, each of these characters we looked at in the parable teaches us something about living for God. The long-suffering owner stands for God and teaches us how patient He is in waiting for us to repent. The planted vineyard stands for God's people and teaches us that God wants us to bear good fruit spiritually. The wicked tenants stand for Israel's spiritual leaders, and they teach us what kind of leadership God actually wants. Leadership that helps people grow and pushes them to worship and enjoy God and lead others to do the same. And the suffering servants represent the prophets. And they teach us to expect hostility to the gospel and persecution for preaching and living in the name of Christ. And all of these lessons are important. All of these lessons are valuable. They're good for us to learn. But they are not what the core of the parable is about. The core of the parable is about who Jesus is. Okay, Because remember the context. Back in verse 2 of chapter 20, they're asking him, tell us by what authority you do these things or who it is that gave you this authority. And so they're wondering, why do you have authority to speak like you do and to do the things that you do? And Jesus tells his story, trying to get them to see that he's where his authority comes from He says, I have authority to do this because I'm the owner's son and I have authority to do this because I'm the cornerstone. And I have authority to do this because I'm also the judgment stone. And so let's make our way now through those three colossal claims. All right, So we're rolling into the core of the allegory. And the first one is that Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the Son of God. So we'll verse 13 with me. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? Because they're beating all the servants. They're not repenting they're not changing so he says what shall i do i will send my beloved son i don't think that's hard to pick up on luke chapter 3 at the baptism god the father says of jesus this is my beloved son in whom i'm well pleased straight allegory i will send my beloved son perhaps they will respect him but when the tenants saw him they said to themselves this is the heir Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. And when they heard this, they said, surely not. And so the son here is Jesus. And Jesus is making his last appeal to the religious leaders. He sent prophet after prophet after prophet. They rejected them over and over and over. So God sends his son and they decide to kill the son. And I want you to just note the logic, just the whacked out logic that these guys have. If we kill the air, then it's going to be ours. How will killing the air reap benefits for them? But friends, how twisted can our thinking be when we're thinking sinfully? It can get so twisted. Blindness can see strange things in the dark, and so they kill him. And think about it for a minute. I want you to connect with this story. How, how many of you of you in here are, are parents? So a, a large number. this. This is the owner's son. So I've got four daughters. You guys got to see Claire today be baptized. I cannot imagine somebody hurting or killing one of my beloved kids. That's what's happening here though. The son has come on the father's behalf. He's seeking to help and serve and he's seeking to mediate this difference between the father and the tenants, though the father's innocent. He's done nothing wrong. The tenants are completely to blame. Yet God in his grace has sent his son to come and mediate this difference and the tenants kill him. And and notice here, Jesus, I mean, Jesus is like this is days before it happened. Jesus knows what's coming. He knows what's about to go down. He's telling them what's about to go down. And so the question then, verse 15 becomes, well, what will the father do? And the answer comes in verse 16. He will come and he will destroy the tenants and he will give the vineyard to others. In other words, God will judge them. It's stated here, but it's fleshed out at the end of the passage. But judgment is coming for these leaders' abuse. Because they are abusive leaders They've abused their position and they abuse those that are under their care. And so, dear friends, if you have been abused. Spiritually or otherwise. Know that God is a God of justice. And his judgment is all according to the Bible is always right. He is committed to justice. And one day, they and we will stand before God. And as Os Guinness puts it, all human secrets will be laid bare. All alibis blown. All excuses, evasions, hypocrisies exposed for the threadbare frauds that they are. He'll bring justice. And we're going to come back to that when we get to the end of the passage. But look at the reaction of the religious leaders here in verse 16. Notice what they're grieved over. Okay, They're not grieved over the threat of judgment. They're not grieved over that they killed the owner's son. They are grieved that they lose their position as leaders. And that God's not going to primarily work through Israelite believers anymore, but through believers of all nations. And so that's why they're like, surely not! Surely God won't take uh, the vineyard from Israel and give it to the Gentiles. That was their only concern. Their position. Not God. Not God's Son. But only how they could use the conception of God as a means of power and money. Prosperity Gospel. It's everywhere. And so now Jesus, the owner's Son, Verse 17 looks right at them, looks right in the eye after they say, surely not. And he reminds them of a thousand year old prophecy from Psalm 118 and says, here's how it's going to go down. And so we'll give verse 17 with me. But he looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And so to B in your notes, again, Jesus is laying out who he is. He's, you know, in the face of the question of his authority. And so letter A, we saw Jesus is the beloved son. Letter B, Jesus is the cornerstone. OK, Jesus is the cornerstone. And again, this comes from Psalm 118, which everyone recognized to be messianic. In fact, this was a portion, Psalm 118, of what they were proclaiming during the triumphal entry as as. As Jesus is coming into Jerusalem in the triumphal entry, they are shouting, they are quoting portions of Psalm 118. And that's why the Pharisees are going berserk because this is clearly known to be a messianic psalm. And so Luke 19, verse 38, the crowd saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to them, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if they were silent, the very stones would cry out. And so now after telling this parable, all right, Jesus is directing them back to Psalm 118 that they had just been shouting, the people had just been shouting, but to a different portion of it, specifically to verse 22 of Psalm 118 where it says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And in its original context, that statement, Psalm 118, is referring to an uh, unusual incident that happened in the building of Solomon's temple. And so the way it worked, is they would quarry stones and they would cut them, then they'd have to transport them to Jerusalem. Ginormous, ginormous stones. I, I mean, an engineering marvel. And they'd have to get them there. And they would cut and they would chisel. And apparently one got there. 1 Kings 5 talks about this. And they've got a large stone. And it turned out to be the wrong size. The wrong shape. And just seemed odd. just seemed out of place. And so when it arrived at the building site, the workmen had it set aside. It was the stone that the builders rejected. And in this story, obviously, the builders are the religious leaders rejecting Jesus. Jesus is the stone, he's the cornerstone. All right, so they rejected that stone, but to everyone's surprise, that unwanted stone turned out to be the exact right size and shape to serve as the cornerstone or perhaps the capstone, just one of the key, the keystone at the corner that squared the entire building. And a lot of people do this with Jesus today. He looks weird. He looks out of place. He looks odd. He says all these hard things about being the only way to God. That everyone else is wrong. That he alone is right. And he he has commands for life that are vastly different than the cultural winds that blow through time. And so he's often cast aside. Self-righteous religious people cast Jesus aside. They want a different kind of Jesus. Self-righteous, irreligious people cast Jesus aside. Philosophy professors cast Jesus aside. Sociologists cast Jesus aside. Psychologists cast Jesus aside. Some of you have cast Jesus aside. He doesn't look right. He's too weird and not the right shape. He's not what I want. And this is exactly what the tenants were doing here. And Jesus knows it. And Jesus is know, and he also knows that it's a fulfillment of Psalm 118. But that's not the end of the story. Because the stone that was once rejected becomes the cornerstone. So even right here, we are getting a picture of resurrection. The son would be rejected to death, but he would not be rejected forever. The father would raise him up and thus the stone that was rejected at the cross would become the cornerstone of resurrection life. And friend, he has got to be your cornerstone in your life if you are going to live for him. I mean, for the glory of God and your own good, he has got to be The cornerstone of your life. Anything else that you build your life on. Any other foundation you try to set your life on will eventually crumble. This is the book of Ecclesiastes. He tries everything under the sun and they all crumble and leave him wanting. And so anything else other than the cornerstone that you set your joy your joy on will fall apart and it can be taken from you I've talked about it before in an instant one phone call and if your joy is ultimately set in your job or in your spouse or in your kids or in your hobbies all good things but if your joy and your purpose and your meaning is completely wrapped up in those things and in the positive outcome of your circumstances then one phone call from the er one phone call from the doctor one phone call from the boss and you have lost meaning purpose joy in your life because it's all circumstantially based but if it's set in the eternal cornerstone of jesus it's immovable it's unshakable it's secure It can never be taken from you, no matter what. It's an unmoving anchor that will see you through the darkest of times and keep you steady in the greatest of times. And so Jesus is the cornerstone. That's not a question. The question, though, is in your life, in my life, are there aspects of our lives in which Jesus is not the cornerstone? Are there aspects in our lives where we've cast the stone? Maybe we've received Him as our Lord and Savior, but there's aspects of our lives. This little pocket over here, I don't want Him in that. I'm going to cast Him aside here. This little pocket here, I don't want Him in my business. I don't want Him in my sex life. I'm going to cast Him aside. I don't want Him in my ethics. I'm going to cast Him aside. Are there areas in your life where you've cast Him aside? Jesus loves you and he wants you like going back to the analogy to grow vineyard flourish produce good fruit love joy peace patience kindness goodness gentleness faithfulness self-control right he wants to grow these things in you and you can't build that kind of life where jesus is not in your life or where jesus is just a part of your life He's got to be the cornerstone of your life. And if we, like these religious leaders, fail to see Jesus as the cornerstone of life and reality, fail to build our lives on Him, then He becomes a different kind of stone to us. A judgment stone. And that's to see. And so to see, Jesus is the judgment stone. Look at verse 18. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Again, it, back, back in verse 15, what will the owner do? He will come and destroy those tenants. And down here in verse 18, everyone who falls on that stone. The stone of Jesus, the judgment stone, will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush them. And so Jesus is talking of judgment here. He is talking about hell. Judgment he's going to bring against evildoers. And culturally, two of the major objections to Christianity relate to this. So it's chat. Here are two objections. I can't believe in a God who judges and sends people to hell, who has wrath against evil and injustice. I can't believe in a God who would allow all the evil and injustice and suffering of the world. But do you see how these two things are self refuting? We want justice on the one hand, but we don't want God to bring justice. We want justice for all the injustice of the world. But when God says, I'm going to judge and I'm going to bring justice for them. I don't want God to do that. He needs to just love everybody. I mean, just like we love justice. Think about it just culturally. We like that. We like justice. It is a good thing. We have all kinds of things in our lives about it. We ple- it's in our pledge of allegiance as a country. It frames a lot of our favorite hobbies. Crime television, courtroom TV has never gone out of style. Whether it's like old school Perry Mason and Matlock and Blue Blood. Or that's a new school. But Murder, She Wrote, In the Heat of the Night. All of these old school things or newer CSI, NCIS, Sherlock. We love even Judge Judy. We love justice. We love the idea of justice and that there's a just judge and that in the end, people get what they deserve. I mean, even Friday in the Stegall house, we were watching Harry Potter five, the Order of the Phoenix, and the girls are freaking out about this horrible lady, Professor Umbridge, and they kept telling me it's going to be all right. She's going to get it in the end. She's going to get it in the end. Hang on. And she did. Justice was served. We feel good about that. Justice was served. And so culturally, we love the idea of justice. But then when it comes to the idea of the justice and the justness of God. Not so much. And so do you see our problem here? How we're two faced with this. We love justice until someone starts talking about God being just. Then all of a sudden we don't like it. Well, that's not right. God should just love. But folks, the reason that God has wrath and has anger is because He is love. It's because He loves that injustice will be punished. It's because He loves that wrongs will be righted. It is because He loves that judgment will fall on evil doers. And so wrath is only possible, judgment is only possible because of love. And you know this. Think about it. you got to think about these things. If there is no love, if you don't love something, then what could possibly make you wrathful? Because if you don't love it, if you don't care, then you don't care if it gets damaged. You don't care if it gets tarnished. You don't care if it gets violated. You don't care. But if you love this thing, and that happens, like with my kids, I love them. so if something happens, now I'm angry. Now I'm upset. Now there's wrath for whoever violated, hurt, whatever. Now that comes up. Only because I love them. If I don't love them, then I don't care. And so it stems, all of it stems, all of the justice and all of the judgment stems from love. And you can rail your fist against this all you want. I'm just telling you what the Bible says. Jesus is the judgment stone. Who will crush all those who refuse to take him as the cornerstone. That's a reality. But the big message of Christianity that is so amazing and really crazy is not that God has wrath and judgment. That makes sense. It just makes sense. You rebel, you, someone who commits a crime over and over and over and over, they're found guilty over and over and over and over, they go to jail, that's normative. that, That makes sense. So the crazy thing about Christianity is not the fact that God has judgment and wrath. The crazy thing about Christianity is that He saves people. We don't deserve it. You heard Claire say that in her testimony. We don't deserve it. We deserve judgment. We deserve hell. We have all sinned. All of us. We're not pointing fingers. It's not good people, bad people. It's bad people in Jesus. We're all in the bad people camp. We all deserve wrath. We all deserve judgment. We all deserve sin. uh, Hell, because we've all sinned. All of us. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus came and paid for our sin in our place. He suffered and died on the cross in our place to pay for our sin. He took the judgment of God, the wrath of God against our sin. He took it in our place. But he didn't just wipe our slate clean. He also before that lived a perfect life with no sin. And when we trust him by faith, he gives us that perfect life and we are clothed with righteousness. It's imputed. It's put on to us. So he takes our sin. He gives us his righteousness. He rose again from the dead to validate the fact that that God the Father accepted Jesus' sacrifice, that the check cleared. That's what the resurrection shows. And he offers this salvation and this eternal life and this freedom to anyone who will believe. But you have to receive it, it's not just default. You have to receive it and agree with God that you were a sinner and that you cannot save yourself. But that He has sent Jesus in your place to bear your sin and to give you righteousness. And if you will receive that free gift, He will save you. That's the crazy message of Christianity. Not wrath. That's just normative. That's a reality. There's wrath but their salvation. And so I'm pleading with you this morning, Jesus is the Son of God. He is the Son of God. And you can receive Him as your cornerstone. And I'm pleading with you to do that. Don't wait until you meet Him as your judgment stone. Because life is short. And some of you, this may be your last week, day, month, year. Don't put off. Don't put off. Cornerstone, judgment stone. Jesus is the Son of God either way. He will be glorified either way, either by you being a trophy of His grace or being a trophy of His judgment. Receive him. He paid it all and he wants to save you. Receive him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the salvation. We recognize we are sinners. We do not deserve salvation. We do not deserve... I mean, you are creator. We are creature. We try to... We rebel against you. We... we, we, we mock you, we belittle you, we think nothing of you. Even if we're not hostile to you, we're apathetic to, towards you. And as the supreme reality of the universe. Nothing higher. The greatest, the great I am. The, anything less than worship of you. And building our lives upon you is an affront to Your greatness and glory. And so, Father, would You open our eyes this morning for those of us who are believers in here, would You open our eyes this morning to areas of our life where we, though we have taken You as the cornerstone of our life eternally, we shun You and build aspects of our lives on other things. Well, that's, I mean, we are great at making idols. Our hearts are idol factories. Would You open our eyes to this truth? Would You show us what that is? And Holy Spirit, would You give us power to encourage to attack and fight and beat down and and, and grab hold and link arms with in community? It's a, it's a community project to defeat sin in our own lives as well as sin that's in culture. Would you help us? And for those who are not yet Christians, would you open their eyes to the truth that Jesus is the Son of God? And He is the way and the truth and the life, singular. No one comes to the Father except by Him. We recognize no one can be argued into the kingdom of heaven, but You, Sovereign Lord, can save people. So we ask You to do it. Show them Your goodness and show them Your grace. And though we have beaten Your servants in our own life, we reject Your Word and we reject Your Word and we reject Your overtures. You keep coming after us. You keep being patient with us and drawing us and drawing us and drawing us. Help us. Save amongst us. And so we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.